Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. This is Kim Simone with Mark Lindsay. Hello, everybody. Hi. Hi, Kim. So I wanted to talk a little bit today about a recent winery trip that I just took to the Finger Lakes of New York. And it was really a wonderful, eye-opening wine trip for me. I'm excited to ask you some crazy questions, Kim. Yeah, anytime totally. someone goes to a winery, I always have kind of geeky questions and unusual questions. So Well, I'm, I'm the right to person talk. to ask those unusual geeky wine questions. Well, of, I'm so. excited to talk about this. <laughs> Sure. So first, I need to know, you went to Finger Lakes, New York, drove, distance, time. Yeah. So drove details. from out just outside of Boston. Took me five and a half, six hours-ish to get there. I'd say six hours with stops. Um, there was a little bit of traffic. There was a little bit of weather. So I would say for most people coming from the Boston area or the Metro West Massachusetts area, I plan on six hours to get to the Finger Lakes. And we went to a couple of different lakes, so more on the western side, wineries around Seneca Lake and then around Cayuga Lake. So those are the two kind of more western lakes. I think you did this the best way. You can take a winery visit with friends who are total wine geeks as well. Mm-hmm. So you, it looks like you had a great time. Yeah, there were a group of us. Half of our group were continuing on to a uh, professional wine conference that was taking place outside of Buffalo. So we uh, all got together a couple of days before the convention so that we could do some wine sightseeing slash professional development altogether. So it really was nice to have a group to go with. But that being said, I'm glad that the group that we were with was was the size that it was. So we had between four and five people on both days, anything bigger than that. And I actually think it gets a little bit crazy for the wineries. And there were a couple of signs at a few of the places that we went to that said like they wouldn't let you in if you were a group of say 10 or more or eight or more if you hadn't already made reservations. So that's a good thing to keep in mind if you are doing a winery trip with a relatively large group, you absolutely have to make reservations ahead of time. So tell us some highlights, what wineries you visited first. Sure. So a couple of the highlights, certainly the sellers at Dr. Constantine Frank. They are on Cayuga Lake. And Dr. Frank was one of the first people, if not the first person to introduce vinifera grapes. So those are those European grape varieties, Cabernet, like Pinot Noir, like Chardonnay Riesling that we are most familiar with. He was the guy who brought those grape varieties to upstate New York. Previous to that, and upstate New York does have a very long tradition of winemaking, they had been using native grape varieties. So grapes like Concord grapes, Niagara grapes, things that are like really overly sweet, very jammy, have a very distinct flavor that are very different from a lot of the wines that we are used to consuming. So it was this real change that he was bringing to the area to make wine out of traditional European grape varieties and then make them more in a style that I think has a little bit more of an international appeal. So it was pretty cool to hear his backstory and how he experimented with different types of grapes, different places to plant them, and then really to taste through their most of their portfolio of what they're producing nowadays. So that was a very historic winery for the Finger Lakes region. Do the wineries promote uh, their history or are they like more like current trends of things they're doing? Are they proud of 
history or are they not because this one gentleman pretty much No, they're the proud history. of it, but honestly, there isn't that much history. Most of the wineries that we went to, in addition to Constantine Frank, are, are relatively new. You know, they maybe were planted in the 70s or 80s or 90s or even just recently. We, we stopped at one, our last stop. They've only been there for like four or five years. So there is this long history, but a lot of the winemaking is very new. So at that particular winery, Riesling, obviously king. Most of these wineries are producing a lot of Riesling. So that is the white grape variety extraordinaire if you're looking at quality European grape varieties that are being grown in New York. So Riesling really is king. But there are a lot of wineries that are really trying to do quality reds. And they're able to because the way that the lakes are, the waters of the lakes produces kind of a warming effect. So it regulates the temperatures kind of throughout the year and allows them to have this more moderate climate than you would in some place in upstate New York that say doesn't have this water effect. So they are able to grow some really nice red grape varieties, but red grape varieties that do well in a cooler climate. So um, Pinot Noir is grown a lot. Cabernet Franc is grown a lot, even though it does require a lot of sunshine to ripen Cabernet Franc. That's usually the last thing to be picked. But there was one winery that we went to, Redtail Ridge, which their winemaker and their grape grower has a lot of experience with northern Italian grapes, red grapes that grow really well in the Alps. So they thought that that would be a fantastic addition to their winery and something that they could really concentrate on. So they grow a lot of Terraldigo, they grow a lot Dornfelder, a lot of a grape variety that I love to say, which is Blaufrankisch, and really do some really nice things with these grape varieties that are quite suited to a cooler climate. So a lot of fun stuff going on. Yeah, I'm so happy that you mentioned red grapes from this region because everyone knows the whites, the Rieslings. So what was their percentages like on Pinot Noir in that area? Are they using 100%? Or are they doing a lot of blending with the with the red grapes? No, I think with the reds, some of them are blended. So those Italian grapes that I was just talking about at Red Tail Ridge, those they tend to be experimenting with doing some blends. But a lot of the Cabernet Franc tends to be 100% varietal and a lot of the Pinot does as well. So there are some places that are doing excellent things. So it's sparkling wine and doing very champagne style where maybe they'll do 100% Pinot Noir Maybe they'll blend some Chardonnay and their Pinot Noir. Um, so really doing what the folks do in Champagne and trying to do a similar style here in the Finger Lakes. But then there are some wineries, like the first wine that we visited, which is Forge Cellars, that only does Riesling and only does Pinot Noir. So for their reds, they are concentrating on Pinot. So it's starting to be, I think, this a little bit of a move away from doing a lot of Cabernet Franc, which I think is one of the first red vinifera grapes that people started to concentrate on and looking to these other grape varieties. And um, the Pinot Noir seems to be quite successful. So talk to us about the the Pinot Noir. Was it typical cool climate Pinot Noir? Very light? Absolutely. Light flavor, light color. Light, savory, very dry, and had some nice flavors to it, but something that you would associate more with, say, Germany or Burgundy and less with California or Oregon. What about price points for a Pinot from the Finger Lakes? Are you talking, I would assume it's over $20 because it's probably a smaller production, yeah. tougher tougher to grow between between 20 and 40 but really right in that price range i wouldn't say that the wines were super crazy expensive i actually felt that a lot of them were very reasonably priced especially for some of the better quality ones and i felt luckily for us we really did see a lot of the creme de la creme of wineries in this part of new york that are really trying to say play with the big boys as far as quality and style. You could put 
a lot of these wines right on a shelf with uh, Rieslings from from Germany, from Alsace. Even some of them could rival some good Burgundy, even though obviously Riesling isn't grown in Burgundy. But style-wise and quality-wise, I really think that a lot of these could live up to a lot of people's expectations of good quality wine. So when I've had Finger Lakes wines in the in the past and Riesling from the region, I get that actual, like you were saying, German, like the almost the petrol notes. Were you getting a mm-hmm. lot of that in the aromas and the flavors? Depending on where we were. Some wineries we got those petroly notes, other places we didn't. And we had a lot of conversations about what causes that. So it was really interesting because there's a lot of science that goes into wine, but nobody has really figured out yet where that particular aroma comes from. And we talk about petrol in Riesling. It's sort of a gasoline aroma uh, for people who don't know what we're talking about. Kind of a minerally, almost sometimes a little salty, but sort of reminds you of honestly filling up your car with gas. And for a lot of people that's a very pleasant aroma when it comes out of Riesling but it's one of those markers of the Riesling grape and we had a lot of discussion about okay what does it come from does it come from under ripening does it come from the particular soil or does it come from when leaves are removed from the plant at a certain point in the year so it was it was really cool because people are kind of all over the place so we had a lot of good discussions about that so did you experience where you had it in a region that had the petrol flavor and had the same soil as someone that didn't have that profile so to eliminate soil um did you run across no, that no not really no no so what about jury's kind of out still what about the vicinity to the water are they all pretty close to the water a lot yeah all of the vineyards you can actually see one of the lakes from where they are so and it was sort of steep slopes too so reminded me a lot of germany that's interesting that soil and what if there's no like real uncommon factor that, that would cause it no so that's interesting You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. And if you'd like more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. We are talking about Kim's recent visit to the Finger Lakes region in New York. And Kim, you had mentioned a little earlier about sparkling wine. So tell us what you saw for sparkling versions in this area. It was pretty neat because there were three distinct styles of sparkling wine that we ran across. So the first was basic method champenoise. So the same method that is used in Champagne to make sparkling wine. Two fermentations where the winemakers will make a base wine and then they will, once that is complete, they will add a little bit of extra sugar, a little bit of extra yeast, cap it and let the second fermentation then take place inside that bottle. When we were at Redtail Ridge, what they were doing the day that we were there was actually helping make sparkling wine for another winery in the region that didn't have the facility for doing sparkling. So they had done their wine, they had um, done that second fermentation in the bottle, and then what the folks at this winery were doing was freezing the neck of the bottle, shooting out all the spent yeast, so all the kind of the cloudy stuff in the wine, and then capping it with a champagne cork. So because they have the equipment and they have the know-how to do this, a lot of other wineries in the region will 
will make a sparkling wine, but then bring their wines over to them to do the final phase of getting it ready for marketing. So that was pretty cool because we got to see that go on. And it's not a big operation. You know, these are relatively small wineries here in the in this part of uh, of New York. So it was really nice to see that hands on. Oh, it's five people and they're doing the whole procedure. And um, it was really it was really nice to see. So we got to see some of that traditional method sparkling wine. And then they also make a product which I don't know if we've talked about yet on on our show pet nat. Yes, I mean, pet nats around here. So they also make really cool pet nat, which is more the traditional way of making sparkling wine before champagne was invented. So this is got hundreds and hundreds of years of history from the south of France. And it produces kind of a, a little bit of a funky product. You know, it's a little bit cloudy. Sometimes you get them a little sweet. Sometimes you get them more on the dry side. These were made from Riesling. So you got kind of those petroly notes from them and very yeasty, kind of a bready sort of a nose, but really, really cool. So there was more of that traditional style. Um, and then we did have one that was actually carbonated. So they made a still wine and then they injected CO2 into the wine and then capped it. And that's how they had their sparkling wine. So it was interesting because I feel like we saw the whole gamut. You know, we didn't, didn't see any Prosecco style bubbly from, from the Finger Lakes, but we saw these other three very, very different methods of sparkling wine production. And they were all very tasty. So it sounds like they are very open to all different types of winemaking techniques. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see 100% fully carbonated uh, Riesling made traditional? Because I'm a big fan of... No, just the they, Pet Nat was the Riesling. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I would assume this community, like you were saying, they're using each other's facilities to make sparkling. So did you find the winemakers all pretty much get along and help each other? There was this wonderful camaraderie that we saw. So many of the wineries really work together and they let each other use their facilities. They help each other out. There's a lot of back and forth as far as getting the newer winemakers who are who have moved into the area, a lot of advice and a lot of support. And it was just, it was really nice to see. And we really heard that from all of the people that we visited with was that everyone tries to be very helpful to everybody else because they really do see it as we're all in this together. And especially for a region that I feel like doesn't necessarily have the best reputation and a lot of people don't necessarily understand what the styles of wine that they're producing and the quality of the wine they're really trying to raise how their entire region is seen by either people in their own market or in the states that they're sending their wines into so new jersey is really big massachusetts is hopefully getting there so hopefully we'll be able to see more of their wines in our markets pretty soon so it sounds like when you were visiting they really were promoting the region and each other a Mm -hmm. lot to get the name of the Finger Lakes out yep, there. Absolutely. And we discussed in the past where I have uh, distributors come in a, a lot with these wines, but I don't have the customers looking for the wine. So I'm sure now that you're back, your your eyes are more open to see where you can find it or if you see these right. products. And also where I can use them too, because I really was taken in by how good these wines are. And I really want to use them more and more in some of my events so that the public does have a better understanding of what these wines are all about and kind of increase that exposure for them. I'm thinking the consumer, you know, unfortunately, the market's probably saturated with that 10 and under Riesling. So now when you get over the $10 price point, the Finger Lakes is generally always 15 to 20. I think they shy away from it. It's unfortunate because they're making great quality wine. And if you understood the production versus the $10 thing, it's well worth the price. So these wines really aren't in that style of that 
cheap, almost like fruit juicy kind of. You said the cheap word. I did say cheap, sorry. (laughs) Inexpensive. You know, a lot of the under $10 Rieslings either that we get from, you know, from Germany or maybe from California, they're not as complex as, as these wines are. They don't have the depth of flavor. These really are a step above. And you can have them in a number of different styles. So uh, not all of them are sweet. Not all of them are dry. They really do run the gamut from really bone dry Rieslings up to dessert style. So they're, there's something for everybody. And if you just spend that extra, you know, $5 or whatever, I feel like you get a much, much better product. So when you take a, a trip like this to a winery in a region, when you come back, Kim, what, what is, I know you're excited to use them in some sort of event. What was your take on like an eye opener that, geez, I didn't know that. That's why I want to promote this more. Was there something just, just a small production or the, the people in general? I mean, was the story behind it? I think it was the people and their stories, but also the quality. I wasn't expecting necessarily to be tasting such world-class wines. And if I was tasting these in a blind tasting, I would certainly think that, oh, these are, these can definitely be major players. So that was eye-opening to me. Just the camaraderie, I think, of all of these wine growers and winemakers in this region and the, the real skill and the real passion that they all have for these wines and the emphasis that they place on trying to find really good sites to plant their grapes. The experimentation is very exciting for them as well. This is such a brand new region for this quality of wine making and wine growing that I think it's only going to get better. So that's sort of exciting to see too. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find Mark online at franklinliquors.com and you can find more information about me at vinitaswineworks.com. So a topic of conversation that came up a few times while I was out on my Finger Lakes trip was about labor shortages and about the number of people that they have traditionally had in their vineyards to help with the harvest and with you know green pulling of leaves and, and things all throughout the season that they just don't have the labor force anymore. And a lot of this has to do with immigration and with people being deported, because a lot of the folks that are doing a lot of this agricultural work do come from South America, from Mexico. And and this was a topic that was brought up a number of times from people. And we, at the same time, ran across an article from the Napa Valley Register talking about this exact thing and how our wineries dealing with the fact that they are having some labor shortages. So it, it really moves into how a lot of machinery is now taking over the a lot of the work that people had traditionally been doing. It's always interesting how we, we find something or you went on a trip and then in the wine world we find a story that's related to something that you mm-hmm. learned on the trip. In this article you started to mention Kim, the labor. When when I always think of labor needed in the vineyards, I'm always thinking of the guy picking the grapes, the people picking the grapes right? right? But you mentioned all other times of the year where there is labor that needs to be done, the, the cutting the leaves back to, to let the fruit develop better, the pruning in the off season. Right. So it's not just one time a year that you need this labor. Right. And that's, I think, what a lot of people don't understand is that it you don't just like leave the plant to do its thing. And then the next time that you pay any attention to it is in September or October when you're picking the grapes. It is a year long process. And so many of the winery folks and the vineyard folks that we spoke to, they're out there all the time. You know, they're assessing the soil, they're figuring out what's going on with ground cover and weeds and rain and, and this leaf system. So the canopy of leaves 
leaves on the vine really has to be managed in order to produce really good quality grapes. So we were really we were reading up on in this article about the different types of machines that are not being used for harvest, but are being used for getting rid of this leaf cover, which I hadn't really known that much about. But it's uh, it's interesting to see just how labor intensive it is to grow grapes. And it's not just in the fall. And this article focused on the wine pot in Napa, but they also mentioned this is a whole state of California issue with all agricultural products. So very eye-opening. What do you think, Kim, they had mentioned that this hurts high-quality wine. Do you think hand harvest versus machine harvested is a quality issue because they then went on and said if you didn't tell a person if it was machine or hand harvested they could not tell the difference which obviously you probably could you know couldn't tell whereas you could what type of oak or something like right. that but i mean i think it's important in that you get to pay attention to the little things that are going on at different points on the vineyard so if you have a section of your vineyard that is ripening at a different time than others then you you're not going to send your machine out there to pick this bunch and then this bunch and then this bunch when a machine goes out to pick all the grapes they pick all the grapes but this whole like leaf cover issue really does need the human eye on it and and I don't know how much of the the deleafing is something that can be done on a smaller scale versus on a larger scale. I, but I, I really think it does come down to the individual attention that is given to the, the vineyard. So if it's a matter of you still have vineyard managers that are paying attention to what is going on, and then instead of having the human hands on the vine to do the actual labor, you've got these machines and they can still do it in a way that they are paying attention to all the little things, then yeah, then then maybe you can't. But I, I don't I don't think that you can look at a hundred acres of vineyards and say, okay, let's just go in and do this. I think that that is too big to be able to produce like really good quality wine if everything is kind of ripening at different times. Yeah, that's a great, or has different needs. Great point of looking at it from a, a point of quality because the the human interaction, they're walking through the the vines. If they see fruit that's not formed properly or is dead, they drop it. They don't put it in the basket to, to go to the winery. The machine's picking everything. And especially and then, when you're talking about like a large size of a vineyard, you'll have little microclimates in, in little areas that maybe have different wind coming through or a different aspect where they get more sun or less sun or the soil is slightly different. So if there's more clay in there, then it'll retain more water and then the grapes will do something different. You know, there are all these little things that quality winemakers pay attention to. Yeah, and looking at it that way by selecting the best fruit, they're producing obviously better wine. They're not mixing all the bad grapes with the good grapes. Hopefully they might sort it out after, but sometimes that doesn't even happen. So this story also mentioned how there was kind of two different labor forces, like the the wineries hiring people themselves, or they do use big groups of labor pools, which are also hurting to find people. Mm -hmm. I think it was like the labor pools were down like 87% staff or like thousands of workers this year. Yeah. And like you mentioned before, it's not just grapes that are an issue. It's a lot of agricultural products that need attending and need picking. And in a lot of places, there just aren't the people 
to be doing that work right now. They also mentioned that uh, UC Davis was doing some experimental vineyards where everything is machine. I thought this was interesting. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And the thing I thought the most interesting about it is they break down the actual damage costs per vine mm-hmm. is less when you use machines than if there was laborers doing right. the work. And I thought it was also interesting that they said that when they use machines to do the harvesting because it shakes the berries off of the vine and it doesn't clip them off by the bunch, then there's less sorting that has to go on actually in the winery because people don't have to be pulling the grapes off of the stems. There's no distemming people involved. So this just got me thinking about all different like levels of jobs and labor that have to be going on in a winery. And do we really want to be taking all of this work away from people? Like how how much more automated is it going to get? I don't know. It just made me think about yeah, different the, levels of that. All those machines, it's not really the same machine that's doing all the different various No, stages. it's all different. Like, it's different, different machines. machines. So think of it as the cost point of view from a winery. If I can hire a laborer or do I have to buy three $300,000 machines? Yeah. So they're getting hurt on that point of it, I, I would think. Thank you for listening to us today on the wonderful world of wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to find out more about our show, please go to Facebook and find us at The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. Cheers.